What do we know about Genesis? Uh, first book of the Bible, obviously. Uh, name is from the first phrase, in the beginning or in beginning. If you want to get into that discussion, we can do that later. Regardless, we've got Genesis. It is the story of God beginning to create and do all that He's done. It tells us about who God is. It reveals God's character. It tells us who we are in relationship to that. It talks about, obviously, our sin and our need for God. and goes from there. But we're going to pick up in, in 27. We're going to go back just a minute in 25. We are talking about Jacob and Esau today, but to start with, verse 19 of chapter 25 says, Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Go to 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. This is uh, Rebekah. She was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then, why then? Am I this way? So she went and inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and the one shall be stronger than the other. And so if you, if you have the NIV, it actually says they, they jostled together, and then she went and asked God, Why is this happening? Um, the New American Standard is a little awkward in the way that it reads. So she gets pregnant, and she's going to have twins. The twins are getting after it in the womb. Now, this is her first time being pregnant, so I'm sure, you know, things are going crazy and Rebecca's going, what in the world is going on? So she goes and she talks to God and says, God, what is going on with these babies? And God says, well, you've got two of them, and from that, uh, you're going to have two different nations, and the younger one is going to be greater than the older one, which is odd because in this culture, in this society, the older one was always greater than the younger one. The older one always got the double portion of the blessings uh, and, or the inheritance, and the younger, the younger son would get one. But this is going to be opposite. But this is before they're born. Now, we see that that's going to happen, but God tells her this. Why is that? Is there a reason? Not that I can explain. If you go on to chapter 48, there, you see a similar circumstance where you've got Joseph who is the son of Jacob, which is one of the boys here, which is the younger son, Joseph takes his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the older, and Ephraim is the younger, and he takes them to, uh, to Jacob to be blessed. And Jacob crosses his hands, and he blesses uh, the younger one a greater blessing than he does the older one. And again, there, there's no reason. Just for a, a quick answer, just in what God does, when we question, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense in our minds. If you go to Isaiah 55, 9, it says, As the heavens are, are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts greater than your thoughts. For an even more in-depth answer on that and our questions about what God's doing, if you go to Job 38, this is awesome, what God tells Job in the midst of what's going on. Everybody knows the story of Job, I'm assuming. And this is in 38, this is after there have been a bunch of debates about what's happening to Job and his physical condition and whether he's being punished and he's done something wrong or what's going on. And Job is questioning things. God comes to Job finally and says, and it's, it's three chapters long. I'm just going to read a section. Or God says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. When God tells you to gird your loins like a man, you Better be nervous. And I will ask you, and, and you instruct me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you, have, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who, stre- or who stretched the line on it 
on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went from the womb, when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt on door. <coughs> A bolt and doors, and I said, Thus for you shall come, not no further. And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changing like clay under, under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. For the wicked, their light is withheld, and the, <clears throat> and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the gates of deep darkness have you understood the expanse of earth tell me if you know all this now this is this is a different story obviously but god comes to job and basically says where were you where were you when i laid the foundation of the of the world and the universe and i put it all together and i held back the waters and I know the dimensions of what I've made. Where are you at? I think it gives us a good perspective on when we question God. It's great to ask questions. It's okay that we don't understand because we're not God. And we're, we're not going to understand everything. But if we have it in perspective, we don't, under, we don't understand everything, then we can ask questions and we can seek. But realizing if we get upset about it, our answer can be much like Job's was, where were you, Case? And so if we look at this and go, you know what? God's got it under control. Even though I don't understand why in this culture God has decided to do this, He did. And so that's where we're running with it. So the older is going to serve the younger. Verse 24 says, when her days, were, <clears throat> when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. After his brother came forth, his hand holding, or with his hand holding onto Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was sixty years old when she gave birth to them. And so she gives birth and has the first son. His name is Esau, and the second son comes out, and he's holding onto his brother's heel, and they name him Jacob, which means holds onto the heel, or it can also mean will supplant or deceive. Which, some foreshadowing here, again, this is a story. This is a story telling us what happened. And in all great stories, there's some type of foreshadowing. And here we have it. Here is Jacob holding onto the heel. They name him after that, but then it's going to have a fuller meaning later on because he's the one that's going to supplant or deceive. So verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So here we, here we have the beginning of a family that's not functioning what I would say the way God would have designed it. You have the twins, and Daddy likes the older twin, Esau, and Mama likes the younger twin. And it's going to cause some issues. But if you go back, in Isaac's life, this is kind of a cycle that takes place and with this family and continues on because in 25 verse 5, just real quick, it says, Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away 
from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So Isaac was the favorite of his dad. And his dad gave him all that he had and the other sons and and children he sent away. And then Isaac has his sons and he has his favorite. That's kind of easy to see why why he did choose that, I would think. Um, Esau is obviously the firstborn. Not only that, he says he's a skillful, skillful hunter. And Jacob stays home uh, by the tents. He's kind of a homebody. So Esau is the man's man. And Jacob is kind of the mama's boy in that day and age. However, the guy's living in a tent. I don't know how many of us would live all the time in a tent. I mean, it's pretty rough in it now. Um, regardless, Isaac and Rebekah fall into this. Or Jacob and Re- yeah. Excuse me, Isaac and Rebecca fall into this cycle of favoritism in their family. And we're going to see it's going to be very destructive. Verse 29. When Jacob, no, excuse me, verse 27. We already said that. Verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom, meaning red. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die, so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me, so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So even though Esau is kind of the man's man and the hunter, he goes out and he's hunting and he comes back and he's famished. And Jacob is there, being the homebody, making some stew. It's kind of funny. Like if you look at an old western, it's easy to see why they would have chose who they chose. Because in an old western, who's the cool guy? He's the guy that's on the horse. He's out either doing the cowboy thing or he's hunting and bringing back the deer or he's shooting the bad guys. And the guy who is never the main character is the guy with the chuck wagon. And sometimes they'll go through multiple chuck wagon guys. He's just never... The cool character. I, if I got to be in a Western, I would not want to be the chuck, man, the chuck wagon guy. That would be awful. So we see very simply, hey, this is the man's man and this is the other guy. So they're doing their thing. Esau goes out to hunt. And he comes back. He's famished. I'm really hungry. Give me some of that stew. Now, even though Jacob is the homebody cook, he's kind of a smart guy. And he says, first, sell me your birthright, which is huge. Because if Esau sells his birthright, he basically sells his dominant position in the family. And being wise and thinking through his decision, Esau says, Great, give me some stew. If you're going car shopping or looking at a house or making any kind of deal, this is not the guy you want with you. Ryan and I, she's going to be upset about this one. Ryan and I went looking at houses probably six or seven months ago. And we ran across this house. It was a really cool house. And really nice, really neat, nice and spacious. It was a good deal. We didn't buy it. But we go back to talk to the realtor. And I'm telling her on the way, okay, when we go in there, don't tell them you like it. Don't, nothing. Okay, we'll walk in. We'll act like it's okay. And we'll see what we can do. We walk in and sit down, and the lady says, how'd you like it? And Ryan goes, we loved it. No. Same type of deal here. Makes rash decisions. Doesn't think through things. 
And so he sells his birthright for some stew. He eats his food, and then it says at the end, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. For short-term gratification, Esau gave up the long-term. We could run multiple ways with that. Because that concept right there transfers directly into our lives in many ways. Many practical ways. And we're not going to go in depth, but just know, if you go with the short-term gratification, do not think through the long-term, you're going to be much in the same spot that Esau is. We'll keep going. So we've already seen mom and dad are not doing so well on the parenting side because they've now picked favorites. Esau's not the wisest guy. And now we're going to get to Jacob. Kind of where we're going to focus. In chapter 27, Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as, such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul might bless you before I die. Rebecca was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So, then, so when Esau went to the, out to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you, go now to the flock and bring me two choice goats from there, that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father, that he may eat, that he may bless you before his death. Verse 11, Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill free, fill me, <clears throat> excuse me, fill me, then I will be as a deceiver in his sight, and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. And so, Jake, or, excuse me, Isaac says, Esau, go out, do some hunting, bring me back some food. So that I can bless you before I die. Rebecca overhears it, knowing if you go back in, in the life of Rebecca and you go back to when she's pregnant and she talks to God, God says, the older one's going to serve the younger one. So she actually got, kind of has the inside track on who to pick as the favorite. But instead of letting God work out his plan, because he can do it, he can do whatever he wants without our help, with not letting him do that. Rebecca steps in and jumps right into the deception to move Jacob into where she thinks God is uh, going to place him, which is where he's going to place him, but probably through different means without her help. Again, if we go back and look at chapter 48 with Ephraim and Manasseh, that was God's plan. There was no deception going on. They went in and it worked out. In this case, however, it's complete dysfunction. God's plan happens because he's faithful, but for the family, it's total dysfunction. And so Rebecca has her son go out and lie to his father. Which is immoral on, on many different levels. Number one, it's 
She's being uh, deceptive with her husband and not respecting him in following that lead. Not only that, she's encouraging her son to sin. She's helping him out with that. And so we go into this deception. I was um, invited to go down to a ranch last weekend for a hunt. This story fits well because we're hunting. And my buddy Lance actually goes to church here. He takes me down to this ranch, and it's on the other side of Putnam. If you know where Putnam is, it's just uh, east of Abilene. Putnam is, I think, one store and a restaurant, and that's it. That's all of Putnam. So we go on the other side of Putnam, and we go out, and uh, Lance has told me, hey, man, we're going to go hog hunting. Now, I'm from Amarillo, and I grew up, um, Amarillo's like a big, small town. We, we hunted a lot. We did the hog hunting thing. Where I came from, when you go hog hunting, you get in some sort of ATV, you take a spotlight and a rifle. You drive around, when you spotlight a hog, you shoot him. Very simple. And so, I mean, here we go. So, I go out there with Lance, and he calls me and says, Hey man, there's some guys coming out to the ranch, and they're going to bring some dogs. Okay. I thought dogs were used for bird hunting, but, you know, you're the, he's a deer guy, and I'm thinking, you know more than I do. Let's go. So we get out there, and as we drive in, it's about 9.30, so it's already dark. We drive into the ranch, literally we pull up and get out of the truck, and there are two guys standing there with a trailer and seven dogs. Now, the two guys are standing there in what looks like minor coal helmets with flashlights on the top, and they're wearing these harnesses, and they have chains around them, and they're holding these little straps. And they walk up to us, and they, each, they hand each one of us two sets of straps. And they say, okay, this goes on the front leg and then the opposite leg of the hog. Well, it doesn't matter. We shoot him. He's dead. No. Then they walk up to the mule. We're getting in the mule. They walk up to the mule, and they're holding two pit bulldogs in what looks like bulletproof vests. I look at Lance. I go, dude, whenever you engage in an activity where you have to have two pit bulls in bulletproof vests, you have to question what you're doing. Here's the idea. Rather than doing what I was led to believe we were doing in hunting hogs with guns, you take five dogs, not including the two pit bulls, and you let them go. And they run, we're on 1,500 acres. They just take off running, and they know to go find a hog. And you drive around and stop and wait. And you wait until the dogs start howling, which they call baying. I don't know why. I don't know why we can't just say barking. But we're driving around. These guys are, I mean, Backwoods redneck all the way, and I love them. When I was in college, I was in an identity crisis, and I tried to talk that way because I thought I was a cowboy, and then I realized I wasn't. Regardless, this experience really taught me that I wasn't a cowboy. And so we're driving around, and we're waiting, and they're like, you hear those dogs banging? You hear? <laughs> they're barking, dude. Anyways, the dogs are barking, so we get out and begin to walk towards the sound. No guns. We have a flashlight. Lance has a little flashlight, but it's about this big. And so we're walking, and then we stop, and we're just standing there in the pitch black. It's me and Lance and these two guys and two pit bulls with bulletproof vests on. And the dogs are howling. And, and I'm thinking, this is a bad situation. I don't even have a flashlight. I don't have a dog. I don't have anything. It's just me. And so I'm standing there. I'm next to Lance, and I feel like an eight-year-old because I'm like huddled up next to Lance. And I'm going, and I'm looking around, and I see a tree. And I'm thinking, all right, I can jump, and I know I can swing up on this tree and get out of the way of this pig when he comes to get us. 
Well, the idea is that the dogs will, will get this pig and they'll get him in a circle and they'll hold him there. And then you walk in and you let the pit bulls go and the pit bulls jive on the pig and they attack him and they hold him down while you strap him up. And then you drag him to the road and you go hunt some more and then you just pick them all up at the end. And they're still alive. Great idea. And so we're standing there listening for the dogs and they stop barking. They stop howling. But, I mean, it's just totally silent. I'm going, well, this, this is all right. Because, I mean, you wait till they're really going at it. And then you, you walk up there because they're holding the pig. All of a sudden, one of the dogs runs back. And he's back over here. And they're petting him. And then they kind of shine a light on him. And he now has a hole in his side where the pig has gotten him. So I feel great. Because the dogs that are supposed to hold the pig, while we bring the other dogs in, don't do their job. I mean, they just get hit and they run and and it's over with. And so I feel, you know, really, really safe at this point. And I'm thinking, Lance, it's it. I'm going to die out here wrestling pigs. We're not even hunting. So regardless, deception. That's where that story was going. (laughs) Once I got into it, you're all just really interested in what happened. I know. So anyways, don't go hog hunting with Lance because he will lie to you. If somebody says, let's go noodling, it's catfish fishing, that's a lie too. Okay, let's move on. So now we're deceiving. Jacob answered his mother, Mom, if I do this, number one, I'm not a hairy guy. What if he finds out I'm going to get a cursing instead of a blessing? So Jacob, for a moment, is the voice of reason. Mom, this is a bad idea. Mom says, no, it'll work. Verse 13, but his mother said to him, your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made, <clears throat> made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins on the young goats, um, of the young goats, on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She gave him the savory food and the bread which she, she had made to her son Jacob. So verse 18, Then he came to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob answered to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. So he starts out with, number one, a lie. I'm, I'm Esau, which he's not. He's Jacob. He goes on and says, I've done as you told me. Get up, please sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is it you have... You have it so quickly, my son. And he said, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. And when I read this, I thought, that stinks. Because you're lying. Not only that, but you're using God in there and saying that God was working when he wasn't. And so Jacob sits and he lies again. And Isaac said to to Jacob, please come close that I may feel, feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to, his, to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau, so he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, Bring it to me, and I will eat of my son's game, that I, <clears throat> that I may bless you. And he brought to him, and he ate. He also brought him wine, and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth 
and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be masters of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. And so now Jacob has successfully taken the birthright, which was Esau's fault. And now he's also taken the verbal blessing from the father. Which on the, on the cool side, this is good for, for, um, for Jacob. He's the younger son and he's got all the stuff that the older brother would have had. And Scripture doesn't go in depth on this at all or even discuss it. But when Jacob walks out, how does he feel? What does he have to deal with with guilt and just his conscious period? I remember the last time I lied to my dad. I was 18. And I was a senior in high school and I would always get home. I got out at like 1, 1 or one thirty, And I would go home and I would be home until... Um, you know, five or six when my parents got home. And so I'd usually go to the gym and then I would then I would come home and I never did homework, so I just kind of hung out. And I remember I was walking through the halls and at that time, we were real into punching things, like now. And so I walk into my bedroom and I'm, I wasn't even angry. I just walked in and I punched my door. Well, I put a hole in it. And I thought, this is bad. This is, shoot. And so I begin to devise a plan. Okay, what do I have? I have a door with a hole in it. Dad's going to be home in two and a half hours. Do I have any putty or anything to do wood, wood putty with? No. Okay, next plan. I'm going through the house. All right, here's, here's the deal. There are doors all over this house that look the same. And there are some that face the same way. So I get the screwdriver, and I take the door off the hinges, and I take it to my sister's old bedroom who had moved out. And I change my door with the closet door from her bedroom and put it on, on mine. Success. When you're 18, you're a moron. They were wood doors. And they weren't painted. They were just, I mean, they were brown wood and you could see the, the grain and everything. And looking back, we'd lived there since I was five. Dad knew what grain the doors were in each one of the rooms. And so about three weeks go by and I actually leave town. I leave town and I go look at a college and we come back. While I was there, I met Jesus. And so I left not a Christian. I came back knowing Jesus. And I remember right after I got back, my dad's in the basement and he yells at me to come down there and I walk down there and my dad, I'm terrified of my dad still. And I walk down there and sit down and my dad goes, what happened to that door in uh, your sister's bedroom? What are you talking about? He said, the closet door, it's got a hole in it. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, dad. It's, it's my sister's closet. I haven't been in there. And he goes, okay. And I got up and left. And about two weeks later, for a little two weeks, this thing eats at me. And finally, I walk up and I go, Dad, let me tell you that I lied about that door with a hole in it. And my dad was so funny. He goes, yeah, I know. And that's when I realized, Dad is a lot smarter than Case. And Dad just let me sit in it for two weeks. You know, oh, I can't believe I lied to Dad. My goodness, not only that, now I'm a Christian. And so God's really eating at me because I'm doing my quiet time. And it was terrible. Over a little hole in a door, Esau stole a blessing and lied about what God was doing. That, I'm not Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob did. <clears throat> and so he's got to be dealing with some guilt. Regardless, 
Verse 30, Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunt. Then he also made, a sa- <clears throat> made savory food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Isaac his father said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and, and said, who is he that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of it, ate all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master, and all his relatives I have given to him as servants. And with grain and new wine I have sustained him. Now as for you then, what can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing? My father, bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above by your sword you shall live, and your brother shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. So Esau comes in, obviously. They find out what happened. But if we look back at Isaac's uh, favoritism of his sons, he gave basically all, all of it to who he thought was Esau. And when Esau actually came in, they found out, he's like, I have nothing left. So if it would have, I mean, we want to think of it in this terms, if it would have been Jacob, he wasn't really concerned about it. Not really worried about what's left for him. And kind of flips on him, and he doesn't have anything to, to basically give Esau. So Esau's very upset. Verse 41 says that Esau bore a grudge against his brother and wanted to kill him. Long story short, Rebekah finds out and devises yet another plan and goes to her husband and says, Hey, I don't want Jacob to marry uh, the women of, of this land. I want him to go. And so they send him off to her brother's Laban's house uh, to marry from there. And so Jacob leaves. Again, all these things show us this family of dysfunction tells us a story of all these things that are dysfunctional in this family. We'll just review it real quick. You've got Isaac, who is referred to as the mediocre son of a great man, Abraham, and the mediocre father of the great son, Jacob. What a great way to be remembered. Shows favoritism to one son. Doesn't even worry about the other son. After you see this account, there's not really any references to him at all. He's just kind of another character in the story. Just in the line of what God's doing. So we see his favoritism. We look at Rebecca. Favors the other son. Much more than, than the older son. Not only that, is deceptive and lies to her husband. Is disrespectful to her husband. 
doesn't fall in the line of what God has designed for marriage in the way that it's supposed to work. And because of what she does, her favorite son leaves and she doesn't get to see him. And you've got Esau, makes rash decisions, doesn't think through things, sells his birthright, then he hates it. Not only that, then this happens with his brother where he steals his blessing and now he wants to kill him. And you've got Jacob who goes in, lies to his dad, is totally deceitful, and has to be ended up sent away so he doesn't die. Complete dysfunction on all parts. And in some way, we could probably relate somewhere in there with those four characters. Which are great things to learn just from, from what they've done. For us to look at our own life and go, okay, what am I doing? What am I doing as a parent? Am I showing favoritism to one child over the other? As husbands and wife, are we being honest with each other in things? Are we functioning as God would have us to function as a family? Yes, things were, were different here culturally and things work differently, but regardless, we can still learn from these. The most important thing to take from this, though, and from the book of Genesis in general, is it teaches us who God is and about God's character. And God is faithful. And regardless of what these four people did, regardless of their sin, God's plan still works out. God is faithful to His promise to Abraham that from His sons there's going to be a great nation. And from Jacob, who is the liar and deceiver, comes the nation of Israel. Jacob's name is Israel. And that's how the nation is referred to. And God is faithful to His promises. The main thing we learn, the main concept, the main thing we take from Genesis is God's faithfulness. Or from this story is God's faithfulness. And it translates directly, directly to us. If you go to 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 11, is a trustworthy statement. If we die with Him, we also live with Him. If we endure, we, also, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for God cannot deny Himself. Regardless of what goes on in our life, regardless of what we experience, regardless of what happens in our families, God is faithful to the promise that if you've accepted me and you are following me, you are secure in that relationship with me. And we can trust that God is going to, going to make good on that promise. Regardless of our sin and the things we do and where we fall short, we are still useful for God. God will be faithful.